Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today, in honor of Black History Month, we're discussing the representation of Black characters in graphic novels with Andrew Shepard, Assistant Professor of English. Professor Shepard has taught courses on Black Panther here at the U and is currently developing a monograph project about the character. So since the beginning of comic books, from what I understand, I'm not super familiar with comic books, um, but from what I understand, uh, Black characters have faced many various racial stereotypes. Can you just explain how Black people were typically portrayed in comic books before any sort of shift in positive representation? Uh, so the the representation of, of Black people in comics is kind of complicated. Uh, so uh, there were there were negative representations and there were positive ones. Um, so you could go back as, as early as like say, um, like Ebony White in Will Eisner's Spirit. So Will Eisner to, uh, is kind of, he's kind of like the Orson Welles of comics. He's like the guy who did things with the medium that really pushed it forward in terms of like how you could tell stories specifically with the tools available to you with with sequential narrative uh the the uh, the eisner awards which are like the oscars of comics are named after him so he uh, eisner created a character called the spirit um which basically has like sort of like a, a uh, sort of noirish detective uh story feel to it. it was a big influence on on frank miller's daredevil run among other things uh there was a character who was like sort of like a, a little black kid who was a sidekick to to the main character, the spirit. Uh, and this character's name was Ebony White. And so Ebony White was uh, became kind of controversial for for being um, essentially this character was a well-intentioned effort on on Eisner's part, but he he was unfortunately he spoke in a very sort of thick sort of quote unquote Negro dialect. Uh, his he was drawn in kind of like a as like kind of like a Sambo-esque racial caricature. And he, he was portrayed as a heroic character and, and, and actually was portrayed as fairly intelligent, but basically the, the character kind of rubbed people the wrong way. He, he, he kind of was like a figure out of a minstrel show and it contrasted with, with say, the relatively mimetic style or the generally mimetic style that every other character was rendered with in the specter uh, in the uh, sorry in the spirit uh so basically that that's kind of an example eventually uh, eisner's kind of transitioned the character out because he got such uh such uh, negative feedback for for him and and eisner more or less apologized uh for it or he, i mean he, he sort of expressed mixed feelings like you know the, uh, basically um of, of what his uh, about what his intentions were versus how it was interpreted, so that that was kind of an example of of one of the ways in which you know black characters were were not always represented well. There was also um, in the 1950s, around 1956. Uh, there was uh, an an incident between the the newly established Comics Code Authority. Uh, which was basically a regulatory body that was instituted uh, in 1954 um, following some some uh, concerns about uh, 
basically the content of comics and, and whether or not it might be corrupting the youth of America. Uh, there was a book called The Seduction of the Innocent that was published by a guy named Frederick Wortham. Basically, uh, there was a whole sort of McCarthy-esque, like, you know, Senate subcommittee looking into comics. Um, and so, like, the, the CCA essentially had very strict regulations about what you could and couldn't say in, in comics for, for many decades afterwards. Uh, so... Basically, there was a story that was being published in uh, in the EC Comics line that was uh, owned by by William Gaines. Uh, this is the the line that gave us Tales from the Crypt and uh, Vault of Horror and Haunt of Fear. Um, they also did crime comics, they did science fiction comics. This is back in a period where the American comics industry was actually much more diverse in terms of its its sort of genre uh, like representation and uh, part of the reason why it, it sort of became predominantly superhero oriented was actually because of the cca uh but basically there was a story that they wanted to publish called judgment day it was actually a reprint from uh from 1953 so uh, so it was a, a pre-code comic story uh and basically it was uh i believe it was Al Feldstein wrote it and Joe Orlando illustrated it. So this story involved an astronaut in the in the future traveling to an alien world, which is inhabited by two races of robots. Uh, they're uh, orange robots and blue robots, and they're more or less identical, aside from the the change uh, the differences in their coloring. Um, and basically, you know, the despite being identical, the orange robots are subjugating the blue ones. And so this astronaut looks at this, and he's been tasked with determining their, uh, the, the admission of this planet to uh, a sort of galactic republic. And he, by the end, he sort of refuses them admission on the grounds that, that basically bigotry is, is a, dis, a disqualifier. And then he removes his helmet, and it reveals that he's a black man. And basically uh judge charles murphy who is an, a new york city magistrate who sat on the the comics code authority board he had a, a sort of uh he specialized in juvenile delinquency and so he was uh, brought in basically as as one of the people who got to determine the content uh that publishers were allowed to to put out there uh he objected to the astronaut being black he basically said you know change that panel or we won't uh, allow you we won't uh, approve the story which uh basically in 1956 might have actually really caused publishers like a, a like a lot of trouble like it, it uh, so william gaines the publisher and uh al feldstein the writer both got on the line with him and basically talked to him about this and he's just like you know uh, and they explained like it, it kind of has to be a black guy the story is about racial prejudice uh Basically, uh, Murphy was going to hold uh, like on this position until Gaines basically told him, I will let the press know what your objection to this story being published is if you don't allow us to publish it. Uh, so, so Murphy backed down. He then said something to the effect of, well, maybe you should remove like the, the sweat glistening on him, like, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. And they, they told him that was stupid <laughs> and 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 basically the story was published but that was actually the last comic that was published by by easy comics 
which was having trouble with the type of content it was producing, which was pretty lurid in a lot of instances. Like Tales from the Crypt, if you've seen the TV show, is is uh, yeah, it's pretty representative of the type of stuff that that was going on in their horror comics. Um, but basically, uh, Gaines soon transitioned into doing Mad Magazine, which was enormously profitable for him. He basically, and because it was a magazine, was not subject to the the CCA's uh, regulations. So like, so basically, uh, so you you've got some negative stuff, but you also have like um, there was uh, some of the earliest representation in the medium um, was uh, there was a uh, a single issue that was published in 1947 called All Negro Comics. It was founded by an African-American journalist named Oren Evans. And it uh, it was kind of like an anthology comic. It, it featured uh, amongst its its many stories that it had a lot of shorts. Uh, there was a character named Ace Harlem, who is a, a black private eye and sort of like a pulpy, like uh, Chantlerian tradition. Um, basically, he, he sort of bought off zoot suited thugs and and you know it was kind of like you know like an adventure story you also had a character named lion man who is uh, arguably the first african superhero preceded black panther by uh basically two decades and um and has like uh and that that book um featured black creators and black characters and was was designed to to sort of uh be sort of like a forest bias type of thing it was sort of analogous to the the pulp fiction that was being published in like say the Pittsburgh Courier uh, by by um, the likes of uh, uh, George Schuyler. Uh, George Schuyler under several pseudonyms published uh, a lot of uh, pulp fiction in the the Pittsburgh Courier but but basically sort of similar to that um, basically there was no unfortunately there was no second issue of all Negro comics um, my colleague John Jennings, who himself is a phenomenal artist, he he teaches at the University of California Riverside, um, in their their science and technoculture uh, program within the English department. He also does comics himself, uh, and he's got a really cool series called Black Kirby, which takes uh, Silver Age Marvel comics imagery and sort of does them with like an Afrocentric spin. So, like, I would highly recommend checking out his stuff. It's really cool. Uh, but basically, he uh, he is also a, a historian of particularly black comics, and he sort of uh, he has argued that um, all New York comics was sort of blocked from um, from being published like as a series uh, by racist distributors and white owned publishers, essentially sort of interfering with their ability to get the materials to do that. And so, like, basically, these characters kind of lay fallow, like there, there were, uh, like that, that potential kind of got stymied. So, so, like, yeah, there, there was, like, in in the early days of comics, there was kind of uh, a, a dearth of representation mm-hmm. um, for for a variety of reasons. Right. But uh, yeah. So when did when did readers start to see this shift? this change in the way black characters were portrayed in comic books? I would say one of the, one of the big sea changes was in 1966, uh, fantastic four volume one issue 52, uh, a, uh, character that we all know quite well, uh, black Panther, uh, premieres. And this is the 
first black superhero by a major publisher uh, in the comic book industry, one of the big two. Uh, so basically, Black Panther debuts, and you know he gets kind of an interesting introduction. Basically, the first time we meet him, they, there's like the sort of the what is a convention of the genre, like the hero versus hero fight. Um, and the Fantastic Four are coming off of a pretty major victory in their own title. Like the you know basically they just the Galactus trilogy has just happened. So basically, they have just fought off a giant purple alien that eats planets that like is older than the current existing universe uh like so they are marvel's premier superhero team they along with with spider-man are kind of you know like the flagship characters for the line and then basically black panther single-handedly in their own book kind of takes them to school like he i mean he he roundly defeats them and basically he does this as like sort of a test of their abilities to see if they would be useful allies for him for dealing with a, a recurring what would become a recurring adversary for him ulysses claw and you know and it's kind of this this interesting introduction to this character like he's introduced as this kind of genius polymath scientist as like kind of a gadget here you get you know the introduction of uh, in addition to being the king of his own sovereign nation you get this uh, introduction to Wakanda as being the sort of hidden enclave within Africa that is technologically advanced. Now, granted, in the original version of it, um, Wakanda sort of reverse engineers its technology from uh, stuff that Westerners have left behind. They use their their store of vibranium to, to do this. Uh, that would be retcon. That is to say, retroactive continuity, or like basically, it's what happens when you go back and rewrite a story to to sort of um, fit with your your current storytelling agenda. Um, but basically, that gets changed in the the late '90s when when Christopher Priest, who is the first black writer to to write the the Black Panther title uh, as an ongoing, uh, basically sort of reworks the character's origin story. But um, but basically it was it was kind of a major shift for for representation in comics. So this was 1966. Soon after, in 1969, uh, Gene Colan, who is the artist on Captain America at the time, expresses an interest in drawing black characters to Stan Lee, and so Stan Lee creates a partner for Captain America, uh, the Falcon, who um, Sam Wilson, who is if you're watching the the live action Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff is now Captain America. Uh, so basically that character kind of gets introduced in part because Gene Colan's just like, it would be cool to draw like a black superhero. And then uh, the Comics Code Authority starts to weaken around 1970 following Stanley basically sort of um, essentially protesting some of its more draconian edicts. Long story short, Stan wanted to do a an anti-drug story in Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, the code opposed this on the ground that you can't mention drugs. <laughs> he said, that's really dumb. And, yeah. and just sort of uh, basically uh, published it anyway. And the sky didn't fall. And, you know, and so basically that was sort of, uh, and they realized we're not being as strictly regulated by like, say, no legal body is going to come in and, and sort of punish us if we if we don't follow the, the codes edicts. So basically that sort of led to a loosening of the types of content that you could you could show. So you got characters like 
Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, uh, who is uh, who had his own Netflix series, um, basically, which was a uh, a response to the black exploitation movie trend, like uh, you know movies like Shaft, for example, uh, and you know, and he was specifically sort of uh, portrayed as kind of like a almost like a private investigator type. Like, I mean, basically, he was he was a hero whose services you can hire. There's a memorable story in which. Dr. Doom hires him for a job and then tries to stiff him on payment. And he shows up in Latveria in, uh, in Doom's uh, home country and basically famously says, where's my money, honey? And like fights his way through uh, the, the uh, like uh, Doom's stronghold to, to get paid. Uh, so there was that. There was a character named um, Misty Knight, who was a former NYPD detective who basically she lost her arm in an explosion and received a bionic prosthesis from Tony Stark. Uh that basically she um, uses to fight crime. Uh, she ends up teaming up with with Luke and uh, and his partner uh, Danny Rand, the Iron Fist. Uh, basically, you get Black Goliath, who is the um, who could um, enlarge himself. Uh, basically, he was the partner to uh, Hank Pym, the original Ant Man and Giant Man, uh, who used his Pym particles. He was his lab partner. Um, so you had like those characters taking off at Marvel. You also had uh, a pretty landmark Black Panther run from a guy named, um, uh, gosh, Don McGregor, uh, who who basically um, sort of said, like, what if we really sort of use this character to comment on political stuff? Um, like basically, so you he he's the guy that introduces Eric Killmonger as a villain. Uh, really fleshes out the character's uh, rose gallery, develops Wakanda as a setting, uh, and and uh, famously does a story where uh, where the Black Panther fought the Klan, fought the Ku Klux Klan. Oh wow! Like he travels back to uh, to Georgia with his his then girlfriend uh, girlfriend, who um, basically and they run afoul of the Klan, and there is like a, a four issue arc where they, they do battle with him. Uh, so yeah, like I mean, and, and this is 1974. Uh, that 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 arc was actually drawn by Billy Graham, who was the first artist to to draw a Black Panther comic. Uh, and so over at the Distinguished Competition DC Comics, you have a character named Black Lightning who emerges. He uh, has, as you would imagine, electric uh, electrically oriented powers. Um, uh, he basically he starts off. He's created by uh, a writer named uh, Tony Isabella, and he starts off in um, Suicide Slum, which is uh, basically like the ghetto of of Superman's metropolis, uh, like looking out for the community there. Uh, and uh, basically, shortly after that, you get John Stewart, who is the the um, uh, he is well he's often described as the black green lantern uh but basically he was sort of introduced during dennis o'neill and neil adams run on on green lantern and green arrow and basically he kind of initially has like a more militant stance like the idea of like having like a a black guy with strong opinions on civil rights being introduced into this core of of like space cops is is kind of an interesting premise and he and Hal butt heads for a while before they develop this sort of mutual respect and eventual friendship 
so like you you start to see this like shift that really starts to happen in in the the uh, late 60s early 70s like well into the silver age and the early bronze age that that's sort of due to uh shifting attitudes on racial politics like the civil rights movement has has sort of gone on you've you've got uh, you've gotten I, I think the fact that the comic book industry um was was largely uh, like uh, especially the superhero genre was largely founded and written by by Jewish Americans who themselves had a lot of experience dealing with with racial prejudice. Uh, basically, I, I think that's like an, an an enormous factor in why comics start to shift in terms of being more positive. Uh, so, like, I, I think that that that's a big deal. I think in the late seventies, you see Jim Owsley also known as Christopher Priest, get hired initially as an editor at Marvel Comics during Jim Shooter's uh, run as, as uh, editor-in-chief. And Jim Owsley is the first Black uh, writer, uh, staff writer, uh, or, uh, under his, his, uh, his other name, Christopher Priest, becomes the first Black writer at, at Marvel. He writes uh, a pretty um, famous run on... Um, Power Man and Iron Fist, which is Luke Cage and, and Iron Fist teamed up, uh, that really sort of leads into them being this sort of, you know, interracial friendship uh, that uh, and it was very fondly remembered as kind of definitive take on on both of those characters. He uh, does. This was the the early 80s um, when when he's doing this. He writes um, a miniseries on the Falcon that was published, I believe, in 1983. Uh, and basically, he becomes one of the, the um, first big names in comics to, to, to be a person of color. Uh, he, in the 90s, he sort of revamps Black Panther as a character. He gets asked to do so um, by the editor of uh, the, the company line, a uh, guy named uh, Joe Casado, who's now the editor-in-chief of Marvel. Um, and basically, and Priest was kind of skeptical because at this point, like Black Panther's reputation was not, it, it, it was not like, you know, uh, he wasn't an A-list character at this point. So like he, his initial response was like the guy with the kitty ears, you want me to make him cool. So, and then he, and then he proceeds to do so. Like, I mean, when you look at the, the, the movie version a significant amount of the material that you see in that is drawing upon, I would say, Christopher Priest's run and and uh, Don McGregor's run. Uh, but basically, he he really goes back to the idea of this character as this sort of insanely prepared, you know, uh, genius polymath, like whiz kid engineer who you know is a master strategist and has contingency plan upon contingency plan. Like, you know, kind of uh, like I used to joke with people before, like the movie came out, like if I wanted to explain Black Panther to people, I would tell them it's like Eddie Murphy's character from Coming to America meets Batman. Okay. And, and Christopher Priest really cements that version of him. Uh, so you, you start to see like that type of shit. Also, um, another figure starts to emerge in the, the late 80s, early 90s, initially working as as an editor and then graduating to uh, um, writing chores on uh, on books like Deathlock is Dwayne McDuffie. Uh, and Dwayne McDuffie is is a pretty big deal in in uh, in terms of black representation in comics. Um, 
He's also, incidentally, the the half-brother, or was the half-brother of uh, Keegan-Michael Key from Key and Peele. Um, I, uh, just like a random factoid. But, <laughs> uh, but basically, so uh, Dwayne McDuffie, um, he, uh, in the late 80s, he sort of is looking at the, the sort of the types of representation that's being offered to Black people and how, like, stereotypical a lot of it is. One of the things that you might notice is that with a lot of these early characters, um, there's always like black such and such as like, you know, like, you know, part of the name, Black Panther, Black Lightning, Black, you know, it, it's sort of uh, like, you know, it's like, did you notice that this character is black? Like, you know, basically it's well-intentioned, but, <laughs> but, it, but it does sort of like, you know, it stands out as kind of peculiar after a while. So like he, um, and like falling into some like sort of similar tropes. And so, like, basically, um, uh, McDuffie puts out a, a, um, a, like, a sort of a mock pitch about, like, a, a teenage Negro ninja thrashers, essentially. Like, you know, basically pointing out, like, the, the proliferation of Black characters on skateboard, like, who are teenagers on skateboards that live in urban environments. And, like, you know, sort of pointing out, it's like, you know, that there is this kind of rut that people are getting in terms of representation. So he does this in this like kind of snarky way. Um, and then basically he sort of um, takes that, that sort of dissatisfaction with like, you know, the ways in which like uh, non, uh, the, the ways in which uh, non-black characters are represented in comics. And he sort of uh, creates his own imprint at DC Comics. Uh, he, he creates the Milestone line in 1993, which was which was kind of a landmark. He invites a bunch of of black creators uh, and, and people of color, and, and not and uh, and for that matter, there were quite a few sympathetic white creators who came over too, uh, to to help him develop this new shared universe. Uh, and among them, you had Dennis Cowan, who um, was a, a prominent black artist at the time. He'd done uh, stuff with Black Panther. He had done a memorable run on The Question with Dennis O'Neill, uh, which is phenomenal for anyone who uh, anyone who loves Rorschach from um, from Watchmen. The Question is the character that he was based upon, and they do arguably the definitive take on The Question. Uh, so I would recommend that. Um, not related to Milestone, but right, right, right. <laughs> but basically. Um, like a ton of cool characters sort of emerge out of this. Um, so uh, I can, I can go into some of those characters if you, if you, uh, if you'd like to hear about them. Well, uh, talk a little bit about milestone media. Um, so how, so how did, how did they, I mean, I, you've, we've talked about how they came in and how they started, but how, how else did they create some representation? representational change and maybe that's through the characters that you're about to talk about and maybe just talk about a couple of them to kind of to get to give an example to the listeners sure so like one of the things that they did was um there was sort of like an interest in in sort of creating works that were uh, creating characters that represented a, a a broad spectrum of of um of black and minority experiences so you you'd have like a character like Hardware, who was you know uh, his name was uh, he was a genius engineer named Curtis Metcalf. This is this is a guy who's kind of their answer to Iron Man. 
but instead of being the owner of his own corporation, he worked for um, for a guy named Edwin Alva. And the name Alva sort of seems like a nod to Th- uh, Thomas Alva Edison. Uh, but basically, he um, in trying to sort of get more of a, a stake in ownership in the the sort of inventions that he was creating for this corporation, he discovers that his boss is actually secretly a crime lord and supplying technology to to the mob. So he builds himself a mechanical suit of armor to to essentially like thwart this guy, uh, and and basically sort of is is uh, sort of fighting crime on the streets of this fictional city, Dakota. Uh, so, like, gets into, like, sort of questions of, of you know, corporate America uh, and, and, you know, the how sort of how capitalism sort of becomes complicit in certain forms of racism and, and sort of systemic disadvantagement. Uh, basically, you had characters like Blood Syndicate, which was like the, the sort of premier super team. Uh, at at um, milestone and blood syndicate was a really interesting concept because it's like you know in the past you'd have like sort of team dynamics are, are kind of interesting in comics so you've had like the fantastic four who are a family uh like i mean basically uh you you had the x-men which was like uh sort of a an ongoing like sort of uh metaphor for various oppressed groups uh, like basically uh, for ongoing civil rights struggles, you had Doom Patrol, which was kind of like a disability metaphor. Like all of those characters are people who have sort of estranged relationships to their own body, and they're as much a support group as they are a superhero team. And with with Blood Syndicate, you had two gangs, basically two like street gangs, uh, the the Paris Island Bloods and uh, the Force Syndicate. Who essentially they get exposed to um, uh, to a, an experimental mutagen while in the middle of like this sort of massive gang battle on a bridge um, that kills a lot of them, but the ones who survive end up with superpowers. And this was sort of they were exposed to this um, basically as like a form of of like tear gas or or like uh, uh, that was. Um, sort of distributed by the police. Like basically the police sort of bombard them with this stuff and, and basically they wind up with powers. So they decide to, to combine forces and they sort of say, well, look, the police aren't doing a very good job of, of protecting our communities. Uh, what if we stopped fighting each other, banded together and policed our own? So they, they police Paris Island, they go, they bust crack houses, uh, they, they, deal with threats to to this sort of inner city community and basically it was kind of uh, like you you had it was and they were a multinational uh, or, or like a multi-ethnic group so you had they were led uh, they did you had black members uh, one of the main members who takes over as leader is a guy named wise son who's a black muslim uh you had um a, a guy named tech nine who is who is puerto rican you had um, like a, a characters from a variety of ethnicities being represented here. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of, uh, and it was doing its own sort of political slant on things. They're a character that you would, um, that I'll, I think listeners would probably know best of any of these was a character named Static, who got his own cartoon in the early aughts called Static Shock. You can still find it on HBO Max, I think. Uh, but basically, he was kind of their Spider-Man archetype, like, you know, like the teen hero. He had, he had electro powers too. Uh, 
and basically he dealt with with all sorts of you know like a lot of the the sort of usual like you know girl troubles and bullies and like sort of balancing like you know school and and superhero life the way spider-man did but also like you know basically he uh, it dealt with explicitly with with uh racial issues um like so basically uh his best friend and eventual love interest was uh was a a um, girl named frida who is who is jewish and around uh like around issue seven or so um a static virgil he uh he's starting to get influence interested in black nationalism and he sort of um and he sort of gloms onto some some frankly kind of anti-semitic stereotypes and this is like our hero like and so he he repeats some of this like you know basically not really thinking about like how uh, how offensive it is and she calls him out on it and then basically an interesting thing happens in the comic so like they go home after having this argument and their parents talk to them about you know like historical misconceptions between you know uh black people and jewish people and the and the interaction between the two and then they you know they actually talk about it and like come to an understanding and you know he's pretty apologetic about it and it's like um and it's kind of interesting because you actually see these conversations being sort of played out like you know that basically there is this sort of effort to 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 educate people as much as there there is to entertain uh there's another character named icon who's kind of interesting he was um basically kind of like if superman was a black republican okay uh uh, so basically there's this uh alien he crash lands on earth in uh in 1838 so for for people who are comic book nerds you uh might note that that's 100 years before 1938 when uh, action comics number one debuts which is the first appearance of superman okay so so basically um in his normal form uh icon looks basically like you know like a giant muscle bound version of kermit the frog like he he does not look uh he does not look black but basically um he lands in this like kind of birthing matrix that um sort of changes him to look like the indigenous population of whatever world he lands on and so because an enslaved black woman finds him in in 1838 it uh, changes the 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 baby in the matrix to to a little black baby and she raises him uh basically and he's raised in 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 slavery he ends up fighting in the american civil war uh he goes by the name augustus freeman and then because his species is kind of um very long-lived he has to reinvent himself several times as his own descendant. So he becomes Augustus Freeman Jr. and then Augustus Freeman III. And then by the 1990s, when the book starts, he's Augustus Freeman IV and he's working as a lawyer. And so at this point, he sort of lived through multiple iterations of the civil rights movement. And in particular, he's sort of responded to um, Booker T. Washington's sort of more like, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps you know, like, you know, Atlanta compromise model of, of sort of uh, civil rights advancement. And so basically he lives in his, his mansion. He's very wealthy. Um, he makes a good living as a lawyer. And like a bunch of uh, black teenagers sort of break into his, uh, his mansion to, to steal some stuff. And uh, one of them is a, a teenage girl who will eventually become his sidekick, Rocket. 
And so basically in the process of warding them off, she notices that he basically flies at them um, to, to like, you know, um, uh, like he, he sort of displays his powers in this way. So she comes back and she sort of asks him about his, his history and finds out that he's an alien. And then she sort of says, well, you know, you can do all this stuff, you know, you know, and you, and you talk about like, you know, how, like basically how black youth in, in, you know, today basically aren't living up to their potential. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is? And why don't you like be a role model, like put yourself out there. If you can do all these things and you can like help our community and you don't, then, you know, then basically how are you complicit in all of this? And so he he takes that that he he takes that admonishment to heart. He sort of invents himself as uh, reinvents himself as icon, and sort of goes out there and and like has his views challenged, uh, like you know basically and and sort of tries to to sort of contribute to making uh, the better world that he he sort of feels should should exist. And so you you've got like you know uh, like a number of these characters that that line of. Um, Dwayne McDuffie was instrumental in sort of developing that shared universe, much in the way that like Stan Lee kind of, along with his collaborators, helped um, shape the the Marvel universe in the in the 1960s. Uh, and so like uh, McDuffie has unfortunately passed since, and I think that was one of the significant obstacles to getting it restarted for a long time. But the good thing is that Milestone Comics is um, as an imprint, it has recently relaunched. A number of black creators, uh, including Reginald Hudlin and some of the original participants in uh, in Milestone, uh, have come back to to sort of bring back those characters. So, so yeah, like I mean, basically DC Comics is is producing a lot of that stuff. Oh, so hopefully it um, it it continues and basically uh, the line like flourishes and, yeah. and people go out and buy it. So, oh, that's very cool. So I, there is a lot to this topic that I feel like we could just go on and on about. Um, You seem to know all of it. And I find it very interesting, especially I don't think, um, I don't think maybe a lot of people realize the, the vast history of comic books and how, and especially how black people were um, represented um, throughout the beginning of comic books. So I really appreciate this conversation. Um, tell our listeners what classes you are teaching. So if they want to kind of learn more, they kind of want to explore these topics a little bit. What are you teaching? So right now I'm on sabbatical, but I have taught a course on Black Panther, like the um, long history of the character, starting with that initial Fantastic Four appearance through multiple iterations over like the past like 50 plus years uh, up to uh, and including the, uh, the current film incarnation. And so that's uh, English 2265. So I've, I've done that. Um, I have taught a, a course on African-American literature, too, which is kind of um, like a course on uh, uh, Af- what I'm calling it, the Afro-speculative tradition, which is to say Black people's engagement with science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, so like, so there is some comic stuff in that, um, but also film and, uh, and prose fiction. Uh, basically, so um, so that starts with W. E. Du Bois's uh, science fiction offerings from like uh, 1920 uh, in the form of uh, the Comet, to um, like you know stuff like Get Out by Jordan Peele and and uh, Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. 
Uh, so like, you know, basically like a, in that case, like a century's worth of, of uh, sort of um, like black speculative fiction. Uh, and basically I, I like, I, I tend to focus on um, uh, essentially the representation of uh, the, uh, the representation of blackness in popular culture, as well as how um, people of color engage with uh, like, you know, uh, these genres and use them to speak to their own concerns. So in the past, like I've taught on um, H.P. Lovecraft, who um, who's uh, like a who is not black and, and actually famously held some some or infamously held some kind of anti-black views. Uh, not kind of. He, he just straight up did. <laughs> but like uh, but basically talking about like, you know, his his legacy as a as a horror writer. Um, and he's enormously influential. If you read like Stephen King or Clive Barker or you've seen Ghostbusters, uh, for example, you've seen a, a, something influenced by Lovecraft. Um, but basically he, uh, like talking about not only his, his legacy as, as, a, uh, as an author, but like the people who followed him and people who took some of his concepts and used them to, uh, including um, people from, you know, historically marginalized groups like, you know, racial minorities, like, you know, people on the LGBTQ spectrum, uh, and like used like his ideas to speak back against those prejudices. So basically, um, I've taught courses, uh, a, a course on on steampunk that I, I might want to offer again this time to undergrads uh, that deals with you know like that genre's sort of relationship to um, to the age of of empire and and the potentially romantic notions of it that it it might sort of be celebrating and how how that starts to shift when the people who who were historically oppressed during that era i you know racial minorities and women um basically start writing steampunk stories and and start repurposing that subgenre to their own ends so that was andrew shepherd assistant professor of english for more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.